welcome to Our Folklore, a fashion, art, culture, and design podcast brought to you by The Folklore. The Folklore is a contemporary e-commerce destination that curates styles from Africa's top luxury and emerging designer brands. We make it easy for customers around the world to discover, order, and receive exclusive and innovative men's and women's apparel, accessories, beauty, and homeware styles from dozens of designers that had previously not been sold online. We also use our platform to elevate the stories of our designers and the creative community that fuels them. My name is Amira Rasul. I am the founder and CEO of The Folklore and the host of this podcast. Welcome to episode three of season two of Our Folklore. Yes, it is episode three already. I can't even believe it. I've been enjoying all of the conversations that I've been having with uh, the wonderful folks that I'm just getting to know and also some friends. And I think since we're three episodes in, now is a really good time to get some feedback from everyone. How are we doing so far? Definitely let us know what you think of the podcast by subscribing to us, leaving a review, and shoot us a tweet or make comments on our Instagram at The Folklore. We'd love to know what you think. Also, if there's some people that you'd love to see on the podcast, let us know that too. Uh, it was, you know, we always are really thoughtful about the types of people that we have here. We want to make sure that, you know, it's informative and that we are really uh, making sure we're representing people across different creative mediums and across the diaspora and Africa. So definitely let us know. Uh, In terms of announcements, if you have not shopped our sale yet, what are you waiting for? Things are not going to get marked down anymore. Things are being sold out. A lot of those items, we only have one left in each size. And if you don't know what to choose from, well, we went and made it easier for you by selecting three must-have pieces from Clan, the Nigerian uh, luxury women's wear brand that I am personally obsessed with, and I think I might buy something from the sale. Uh, Check it out in the editorial section on our website at thefolklore.com. There are also new additions in the sale section this week from Fruche, Orange Culture, and more, so definitely check that out. Now that announcements are out the way, I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today. Joining me this week is Grammy-nominated music producer and minister of propaganda, as he calls himself, don't worry, he'll explain, Nana Kwabana. For those of you who don't know, Nana is the creative genius behind some of the songs and artists you know and probably love. I mean, why wouldn't you? He's worked with artists like Jadena, John Legend, and Janelle Monae. He actually produced one of my favorite Jadena songs and probably my favorite, you know, song of two summers ago called Zodi. It was it's with Jadena and featuring Mr. Easy. Obsessed with that song. If you have not listened to it, please do. Um, now, he grew up in Philly, home of Jill Scott and the legendary Roots crew. So you already know he knows, you know, good thing about music. Also music soul childs from there. Just like all of my faves. All right. Nana is a proud first-generation American who celebrates his Ghanaian heritage in everything he does, from his music to his clothes. He's always going back and forth between Ghana, I've seen him in Ghana, Nigeria, I've seen him in South Africa, um, and other parts of the continent. So he's truly transatlantic. In this episode, I spoke to Nana Kwabana about why he went from pre-med to music, his creative process, and the Pan-African Renaissance that we're currently experiencing and how telling our own stories now could shift the trajectory of the next 100 years. This was a great conversation and I hope you enjoy.
would you describe yourself and how do you describe what you do for a living? It's funny, like, <laughs> I was in Ghana having a conversation with my dad, right? And, um, he, he's somebody who's born in Ghana, spent a lot of his time there, came, got educated in the States, and went back to Ghana to like Greenberg. And so every every morning for breakfast, this is kind of a part of our routine, is to have our philosophical and political debates about the future of Africa. <laughs> <laughs> literally without fail, that's breakfast. That's literally breakfast. You know, one of the things that uh, he was challenging, or he didn't, it didn't sit well with him, was when I just answered my version to the question that you just asked me. Oh, okay. And it's, um, I, I was telling my dad that I'm a minister, of propaganda, of African propaganda. I know he didn't want to hear that. I know he, he didn't hated it. He hated it, you know, because of all the obvious, you know, connotations of propaganda. But I'm like, it's real. I, I take that serious. Like, I really believe that I'm here to propagate uh, the greatness of Black people, to propagate the greatness of the diaspora and of the continent as well. So, um, yeah, that's how I describe myself now. I, I, I shall no longer be the music producer. I'm the minister <laughs> of fine propaganda for Black people. <laughs> I guess, and also like, and there's so many different waves where that came in, where it was like, it was like the Negritu movement, and then it was like the Black is, be Black is Beautiful movement. I was just like, so every like generation had their own, like, we just thing. gassing each other up. That's the thing. It's not, it's not anything new. It's not anything new, you know? And, and if anything, it's like, over time, it's proven how much more we need it, mm -hmm. especially when people are working just as hard to erase that, you know, yeah. and, and have worked, you know, extremely hard to make sure that you know, we haven't been in control of our own narrative. We haven't been in control of our own story. Mm -hmm. uh, and so absolutely, I think it's one of those things that it needs to be a generational inheritance that I think all Black people um, need to really embrace. So I'm gladly embracing it, uh, regardless of what my father thinks of <laughs> <laughs> the term. And so in, in what ways do you communicate this propaganda? Through what mediums? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, my background is in, uh, is in music, uh, what's been my focus at least, but, but even larger than that, I think it's, it's, it's come to all forms of storytelling, you know, and I think, um, I think for me, especially like the stage that I'm at in life, I spent a lot of years, you know, focusing on music production, you know, and really made a conscious decision to use that as my weapon of choice, you know, coming from a background where, you know, I, I was obviously pre-med before, you know, I got to doing music full time, but even beyond that, you know, also just an artist in a lot of different ways. I used to, to sketch, I used to do graphic design, I used to do photography, I used to write short stories, you know, and so I think all of these different mediums became something that, the thing that connected them all was this idea of, of creating that propaganda. Uh, and I remember having a very clear and conscious decision of realizing that entertainment was going to be for me when i looked at all the tools that were available to me i looked at i looked at that as being the most effective way to reach the most amount of people and really have the largest microphone for said propaganda so i mean it's fair all of the yeah. most impactful people in the world uh if they're not entertainers in the sense of like music and or if they're not entertainers in the sense of like music or being an athlete it's like the reason why they've captured people's attention is because they've entertained them in some way, even as like a, the former president just entertaining tap dancing for folks. Like, it's like, see how real it is. You know, that entertainment, it's, it's a way to pull people in. Um, and so we're going to go back because how yeah. you just switched from pre pre-med to music. I want to start off with yeah. how you grew up, um, what it was like growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, 
um, and, and what parts of your childhood stick out the most um, and, and how has that molded you uh, the most? Absolutely. So, um, you know, my, my mom tells this story about me when I was very, very young and, and she said, you know, growing up in a household, obviously, that was first gen African uh, in America, you know, we've always had a couple options to choose from, right? It's either the doctor, the lawyer, in some cases, the engineer, the entrepreneur, um, or you're just disowned. You know, you got to choose one of those five categories, essentially, right? And so, um, you know, obviously, I think the path that, that particularly my father wanted for me was medicine. And my, in retrospect, you know, I was going back to my mom, you know, just having a conversation of like, did you know I was going to actually take this other path? Mm-hmm. And she was like, I should have known better because it was all written in your DNA, you know, <laughs> since before you could walk. She was like, you could walk in your 11th month. But she was like, prior to that, um, you were a strange baby because your motor skills, you, know, you didn't quite have your motor skills together. And so I didn't know how to crawl. I didn't know how to crawl forward. I didn't know how to crawl backwards. Um, which is kind of synonymous to me today where I don't, I swim better backwards than I do forward too, which is interesting. Yeah. I think I was like motion dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the things that would happen is like, you know, people would like knock at the door, the front door, and I would crawl backwards to the staircase and wait for someone to come down <laughs> or vice versa. When someone would start coming down the, the stairs, I would crawl backwards to the front door and wait for it to open. Like I just, uh-huh. Certain shit was crossed. Yeah. And so, uh, but she was like, one of the other things you used to do was like, you know, my grandmother used to um, to babysit us. And so I was born in Cleveland, but we left after a couple months um, and went to Baltimore. We were in Baltimore for a couple more, I think until I was about one. Mm-hmm. And I eventually wound up moving to Philly. And so in this time, my grandma would, would babysit us. And my grandma loved soaps, right? So General Hospital, all those kind of things, right? And so she would be watching that while she's babysitting me. And I clearly detested it because I would crawl backwards to her TV and I would pull myself up to the TV and I knew where the power button was. And so I would turn off her soaps and then I would put myself back down, crawl backwards to my father's turntable and I knew how to turn that on. And so whatever record was already on the machine, I would turn that on by hitting the power button. And then I would crawl backwards to the kitchen and I would empty out all the pots and pans from the cabinets and I'd put them in a semicircle around me and I would just drum to whatever music was playing on the turntable. And then in true Nanaquapana fashion, after like 20 minutes of that, I'm a notorious nap taker, avid nap taker. It's on my resume, oh, really great at it, studied it, all of it, proponent, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so in true Nana fashion, I would go like after 20 minutes and take a nap in the cupboard. My grandma knew this routine, I would do it all the time. So she would wait until I was in a deep enough sleep to be like, okay, let me now turn off his music and turn my soaps back on. Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter how long I was asleep, as soon as I could hear the music go off, I'd wake up and I would thunder back. Backwards though, yeah, backwards, yeah, backwards. Exactly. <laughs> and repeat the whole process, right? And so my mom felt foolish years later. She was like, I don't know why we tried to convert you to be a doctor, but I should All the signs were there. All the All- signs. And so, you end up going to UPenn. So that's when you moved from, so you were in Boston? Baltimore. Baltimore. So you grew up in Baltimore mostly. Not even. So, so I was a, a baby in both Cleveland and Baltimore. And then so Philly is where you. Philly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so you were growing up in Philly and that was the birthplace of Jill Scott and uh, the Roots and music ch- soul child. 
And all of that was happening yeah. while you were in Philly. Absolutely. And you decided to go to UPenn. Right. And major, <laughs> and, and major in pre-med. And right. what informed that decision when you decided that, okay, like, I'm in the center of like this renaissance that's going on right now. Yeah. This medicine thing is not for me. Let me go check out what this music is about. I think the revelation I had, because I did have a genuine, as much as it was like a path my father wanted me to take, my genuine interest in medicine specifically had to do with sickle cell disease, mm-hmm. right? Which is a disease that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a disease that affects my family. And so my, my genuine and only interest in music was that, I'm sorry, in medicine was that. Mm-hmm. And so I remember doing a, um, I did study abroad my uh, junior year and I remember going to Ghana um, and I had a research project that was looking at the idea of disclosure versus concealment in elementary age students with sickle cell disease. And I was interviewing all these students and going across the country to all these different hospitals. And the theme that in all of my research was suggesting that most of these kids, when deciding when to conceal versus when to disclose when they had a pain episode, a lot of it had to do with all these external factors that was really like, when you looked at it, it was, um, it was they were trying to avoid the stigma of being labeled with sickle cell disease, right? And so you would have all of these kids that had the same story that when they would go through a crisis, uh, a pain crisis, which um, is like literally the most physically challenging experience I've ever personally had. They would like essentially hide in their closets to avoid their parents knowing that they were having a crisis. They would endure that pain throughout the entire night until morning. And the goal was not because they were ashamed or embarrassed from their mm-hmm. parents. It was that they didn't want to miss school the next day and have their friends be like, why is this person absent? Oh, they must be a sickler. And being labeled the sickler, it was like in Ghana, you know, it was almost like this label of like leprosy or something, mm-hmm. like that, right? And, you know, as a kid, of course, as, as important as it is for you to have like global peer acceptance and all these different things, um, that they would rather endure the physical traumatizing pain of an episode than be able to be cast in wearing this societal label of a sickler. And that's when it really, really hit me. And I like that, that stuck with me so hard. And I was like, let me come back to America and make sense of all this. I, I just, especially knowing what it's like to feel that pain, I was like, this, this is like, as much as there's beautiful work being done um, on the clinical side, clinical research, and, and, and with the specific disease itself, I'm like, there's a whole psychosocial part of this conversation that we have to address. You can have all these cures and these advances and treatments and all these things, but if like psychosocially, if we're actually not going to engage in those things because we don't even want to be, you know, labeled as such, I'm like that's going to kill us before, you know, these treatments. And I'm like, yeah, we got, we got to really talk about that. And so, I was that something like, exclusive to Ghana, or were were you seeing that in other places? Like when you were back home in the U.S. Yeah, same, actually. Like I, I started talking to people back in the states, and I, w- I would find out about these long-standing friendships between people where one would have sickle cell, the other wouldn't, and so many cases of best friends where they knew something was up, but they never knew their friend of 40 years specifically had sickle cell disease, mm-hmm. right? And so I was like, this is, a, this is a real, I'm seeing it on both sides of now, you know, the, the, the bridge, essentially. And I'm like, yo, I gotta figure this out. And so I remember I sat down with my uncle, who oddly enough is also, at the time, my sickle cell doctor, and one of the foremost doctors in sickle cell disease. And so I remember sitting down with him and being like, and telling him this. 
and really trying to figure out how I was going to approach solving this issue, especially given all the things I wanted to do. And he was the first person to give me license to be like, yo, you actually should go the route of not focusing on med school. You should go the route of like music actually. And he was like, it'll provide again, this larger microphone for you. And as long as me and you can continue to work together for our lives and dedicate ourselves to this, we'll have greater impact that way. He's like, I can only reach but so many people at a time, you know? And so he was literally, and then for him to say that being Ghanaian, being African, being that generation to give me mm -hmm. license to be like, yo, do the entertainment thing. Like, don't do the Ghanaian parent propaganda <laughs> that we're trying to push on you. I was like, what? <laughs> say what, you know? And I, I think that just gave me a certain freedom to be like, you know what? I realized there's a lot of value in, in taking a different approach to the same issue. And then I think it really crystallized for me when my brother passed from sickle cell. And he was also a musician. He was also a writer and, a, and an artist. And um, it was through his passing that I, I, you know, I had a revelation about my own life and my own purpose and, you know, what I was here for. And I realized that these two things that I had been making, they've been polarizing for me, right? They were always competing with each other, right? It was like my pre-med career at Penn versus my nighttime producer hat where I have like 26 rappers from West Southwest Philly coming to my, my room, my dorm room until six in the morning recording every other day. Can you imagine seeing all the whole block just like literally, they, they, it was like, I looked at it, I was like, Yo, this is like the Philly version of Wu-Tang. I've never no. with this many rappers like in the same room at once. Like this is crazy. Mm -hmm. Absolute. And so, um, I think I had been allowing those things to just like bump heads my, my whole life. And really when my brother passed, the thing that he left with me is that they are one and the same. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the music is the medicine, and the medicine is the music. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that all of that kind of congealed for me where I was like, oh, these two things are not disparate parts of my life. They work in conjunction and hand in hand with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's what really allowed me to like really pursue uh, unabashedly, you know, really this this path of like my real purpose and my real power and my passion. That's that's yeah. super real that like you were and I think that's what's so important about people like really like bridging this generational divide because it's like we want to please, you know, the older generation, but we also don't want to do it to like our detriment. So being able to have someone be able to like cosign like that really like allowed you to breathe. Absolutely. you know and allowed you to take to take risks so absolutely okay so when you decided that you were going to get into music what steps did you take um to learn your craft and, and to make a name for yourself because already you were already making beats yeah. uh, in your dorm room right. so how did you even get to that point and then from there where where did you go yeah so um i mean music I, again, there, there were so many things before music, you know, I, I was writing, I did poetry, poetry became spoken word, spoken word became rap, rap became performing, joining a band, um, you know, then we had, like, all this music, and I was like, like, you know, I remember in high school, like, we, um, we had, like, this group, and actually, uh, one of the members of it was um, my friend Jelani Day, who was a uh, Dapper Dan's son. Okay. So like we, we had this group or whatnot and we were recording all of these songs on like instrumentals from like beat instrumental tapes back then. And um, at some point we had all this music and we were like selling it to the school. All the teachers had bought the records. We made a lot of money, cut our friends in. We're making good money actually. It was a little hustle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we looked up one day, we're like, man, we should probably start making original music. And I was 
was like, man, you know what? I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna be the one in the group to learn. And so I started learning production um, specifically uh, in, again, my junior year, actually junior year of high school, I was hospitalized actually. And um, for the whole summer I had this back surgery. And um, I remember my friend had put this program on my laptop called Fruity Loops. And I had been talking about wanting to learn music production, but now I had all this time because I had to give for all this time. And so, especially like being in the hospital long-term, I don't know if you've been like, spent like weeks and weeks in the hospital, but like after a while, those, that environment, it really gets to you, right? And it's like all the beeps and the blips and the sounds and all this, yeah. you know, and it starts off regular, you know, first couple of weeks, but then after a month, I mean, it literally starts creating its own like death symphony, essentially. And then you're like, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. And so music became my way to drown out that noise. And so um, my dad was a computer programmer. I've kind of always approached um, a lot of the way that I think about music kind of from a programming mindset. And so even though I didn't grow up raised, um, you know, like playing piano or any of these things, I knew how to think like a programmer with music. And so I, I spent that summer in the hospital learning and every day I would make like a beat and then burn it to a CD. And um, I would uh, walk throughout the hospital and just listen to the beat all day long, just walking, walking, walking for the whole summer. And by the end of the summer, I remember my, um, uh, my, my doctor saying that physical therapy was optional because I basically had been walking every day after this major back surgery, <laughs> like every day. And so that, that was kind of me learning the craft, right? And I think, um, obviously, I, I just had the personality of like, if you're gonna be, you know, if you're gonna really be involved in something, how to be a master at it. So I, I just spent time really, really learning. And I remember getting to college and meeting people and like, I had to make a clear decision of like, again, I was doing all these other things and I was like, my friend really was, um, who was in B school, challenged me one New Year's and we were like, you know, we're not gonna do the whole New Year's resolution thing. We're gonna actually run our creative lives um, through some of the things he was learning in B school. So we did like a SWOT analysis of ourselves as artists. We did core competencies and all these things. And I, um, I remember through the core competency exercise we did, it took me hours to get to my core competency statement because I was never a reductionist. I was like, nah, I'm gonna do everything. Like, why are you trying to put me in a box? Like, I'm gonna be a creative director. I'm gonna direct this, I'm gonna do that. And he literally, I, God bless him because he has so much patience. And we literally sat there, like my friend did it. He got done in his like, in like an hour or two. It took me like four or five hours of my friend just drilling me being like hard as shit on me. Yeah. I came out on the other side and I, I recognized that my core competency statement was going to be, no one is going to create better West African inspired drums in music with pop melodies um, in music essentially. That was like my statement. Mm -hmm. And ever since saying that, that became the only thing that I ever said. It became the only thing I ever studied. It became the thing that other people started saying about me. And before you know it, when anyone was thinking in that way, they always thought of me. And so um, one of the, the producers I was working with at the time, we were working on John Legend's project. And, you know, I had known John for, for a while. I was never quite ready musically to like, you know, uh, create, any, create anything that would like land for his project. But when I had this, you know, kind of change of like philosophy of like what my unique voice is gonna be, um, it like just opened things up. And so I remember creating something in my, um, my bedroom uh, that wound up being developed um, into what would become his first single for that next album, essentially. And it was the epitome of everything I said. It was 
John doing pop melodies with West African drums underneath. Mm -hmm. And that became uh, Made to Love. Okay. uh, Kimber. And so that became like my first professional placement. Um, And then ever since then, it was like, great. That was the sign that I needed, you know, that this was the the reason that I even had like took the chance and the risk on music to begin with. And like, it's what made me validated in the sense of like, you know what? I'm going to lose my uh, med school application in the mail now. You know, I'm going to definitely lose it officially, you know? So, um, but that, that's kind of how it, it, it all began. I think there was a training and I think there was a conscious decision being made and then um, being clear about what my unique voice would be. And when those three things just were in alignment, it was like everything just kind of opened up and started from there. So. What is your process like when mm-hmm. it comes to producing music? Like, what are you sitting down and you're like, all right, I want to hear a bunch of other people's music or I want to go listen to some throwback music. Like, how do you start when you're producing? I mean, it happens in so many different ways, but the thing that's consistent is I have to always be inspired. You know, there's so many approaches to, as everyone has in their craft, there's so many different ways to go about it. But I've noticed no, there's no approach that will work if fundamentally you're not feeling inspired, feeling like led by something. You know, on paper, the job as a music producer, be someone that facilitates the entire process from beginning to end of an idea becoming something that can physically exist in the world. And managing writers and managing, you know, musicians and managing the artists and like not only managing their crafts, but also their emotions and their energies and their spirits and their stories. Like you're, you're literally navigating all of these people in the physical and psychological and emotional space. Mm-hmm. But even still, that's not even the real, the real job. The real job underneath all of that is, I've realized as, as a creative, is that your only job is to actually make sure that there are no cobwebs between your own creative spirit and the creator. It's literally that simple. Like, we have all these judgments of how things are supposed to turn out or how it's supposed to sound or how it's supposed to be received. That's beyond our control. And a lot of people make that their main priority. And it might work for you for a while, but I've learned in my personal life, the less I, I grapple with those things and the more I focus on like getting rid of any cobwebs, like open a clear line of communication between my creative spirit and just the, the divine and eternal creative spirits. Every single time I've done that, I've been rewarded and given something that is completely inspired, completely unique, completely powerful. And then my only job is like, don't fuck it up. Like, you know, and so, so that's, that's really it, you know, I think. And, but for me, it's, I got to be inspired. My spirit got to be open. My environment matters. I got to have the right smells going. Mm-hmm. I got to have um, great energy in the room. I got to be in taking not only music, but just all the aspects of life, right? When you, when you live a life where your only thing is your creativity, your only thing is your art. That, that there's no what's the life force behind that mm-hmm. right like if you're spending all your time in your workplace and in your in your your studio or whatever it is it's, it's not sustainable like it's got to be something outside of that that inspires your work and your craft and your artistry and so i think also making sure i'm tapping into my explorer spirit i love to travel i love the feeling of adrenaline running through my body i love jet skiing on the water, whatever it is that I got to be like out and alive and just feeling like my creative spirit open, then I can receive. So those are kind of my approaches to to my own creativity. Okay. And now let's talk about when you linked up with Jadena um, and how that relationship formed. 
and um, and and what it is, what it is about that relationship that makes your musical output absolutely. So we um one of the the band that I was a part of when I got to college uh, was a band called Like Minds. One of the members of it um, had grown up with Jadena. His name was Legion. He was from Boston, and so he would have Jadena while Jadena was at Stanford. He would have Jadena come visit Penn, and so I would DJ a lot of parties on Penn's campus, and so they would come to my parties. What was this late two thousands? And I think we met, we met at a party, we chopped it up, you know, a couple of times, nothing too serious. But it wasn't literally until years later where um, that band kind of dissolved, their band kind of dissolved in that format. And Jadena moved to New York. And so we got reconnected and we jumped on Skype. And I think it wound up being like a two hour conversation because, and we didn't even really talk about music a lot. We just talked about life. And, and I think he was going through a similar chapter of what I was going through. Uh, at the time, which was a death of a loved one. Like I had lost my brother, he had lost his father. And so I think we just, um, we connected on that level. We connected about our thoughts about the continent. Um, we connected about our philosophies on propaganda, African propaganda. <laughs> like, there were the, like there was all these synergies. Like, you know, I was named after my grandfather who was a chief. He was named after his father who was a chief. And so there were all these parallels and, and, and that really became the foundation of our, our real friendship. Um, and from there, uh, eventually we just started working together. You know, he, he lived in Brooklyn and East Flatbush. I lived in Harlem on 114th and we would just take turns on every weekend. He would come up either to my place or I would go to his place and we would just create, 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 create. So that's kind of the genesis of it. So, you know, I know Classic Man, mm -hmm. that was the one that you both were nominated for Grammy. Mm -hmm. And that was like a very distinct sound. And how did you formulate that and then pass Classic Man when you then go to the next album? What's my favorite song in there? I wonder if you produced the one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Zodi? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. When I tell yeah. you yeah. I play that song yeah, hell yeah. all the time. That's dope. Hell it's dope. So, let me, <laughs> so take us from like, okay, this is the intro. Yeah. This is how we're going to like throw our hat in the ring. Yeah. And this is how we're going to evolve. Because so when yeah. I heard 85 to Africa, mm -hmm. that's where I can hear, like, when you said drums in the pop, like, the thing, mm -hmm. like, that was your main thing. That's when I heard heard that come out. So Absolutely. getting from, okay, this is my intro to, to this is what we, we're doing now. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, and I think in a lot of ways it was, you know, the era of classic meaning um, was kind of a magic trick, right? You know, I think that Again, we, we are the kind of people that we just, we love to study to the nth degree, the anatomy of, of something, right? And so whether we're talking about the guns, germs, and steel and civilization, or whether we're talking about a song or we're talking about a brand and how you kind of come into the game, we, we just, we, we find so much fun in just delving into the, the deep science behind these things and the spirit behind these things. And so I think we were studying and we were thinking about what would be a way that we can come into this space really have a strong introduction, carve out a lane for ourselves and continue to build from there. And so I think with Classic Man, it was a confluence of, of a lot of influences, right? I think at the time, you know, Jadena was very inspired musically by, you know, his time in the Bay, mm -hmm. right? And so Bay music and like, you know, this was a time where DJ Mustard was popping and, and um, some of the bass lines, the bass lines were really driving a lot of music, right? And so I think from a production standpoint, that was reflected in, you know, um, in Classic Man. But I think that on top of that, 
what kind of really stood out for us in terms of the music and the lyrics, I'm sorry, the lyrics that were on it, was creating this whole new archetype that we hadn't really seen in rap music, right? There were all these kind of different forms of the backpack rapper or the street rapper or the intelligent, whatever. We had all these archetypes and we're like, well, where is the guy that like is the, comes in and he comes in a little brazen, might've had a couple of drinks, right? He might have his suit on, you know what I mean? He comes in, he's talking a little shit, but he also like, he, he, the way he approaches his uh, life, he also doesn't feel like a boy either, right? There, there was it's an uncle, an uncle. It's kind of the drunk uncle archetype. Yeah. So to be honest, a lot of it was really just influenced by, we, we just started being like, Yo, honestly, this is kind of our uncles, right? They, just were, they were dressed in suits. Mm-hmm. Our fathers both dressed in suits. They'd open up a little star beer or Heineken, and they just talked shit. <laughs> it was that simple. It wasn't even that deep. And there was something for us. Like, those are the classic men that we kind of were raised around, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that was also happening at a time where like um, the aesthetic of like black men just, you know, rocking, rocking that kind of those kind of clothes, you know, in New York in particular, when we were there in Brooklyn, you had Joshua Kissy, you had um, Street Etiquette. It was a whole, like, it wasn't just us. It was like a whole community. And we were like, you know what? We don't feel like there's anything for us. essentially. And so I think a lot of that went into classic man and it was one aspect of our lives. Uh, but I think that we knew that it would be a way to come in and really tell uh, a unique story. And our approach to that first album called The Chief, it was like, let's make sure we set the groundwork for like people knowing we are African, we are unapologetic about it. You're going to hear some stories that you might not have heard in any other rap albums that came mm-hmm. out recently, you know, we're going to tell our story. And I think the criticism that I have of that sound is like, I think we were doing a lot of, you know, we've had very diverse experiences. I think, you know, growing up half of our time in the continent and half the time here, that's, a, that's its own unique navigation of identity and, and all these different aspects that make up who you are. Think about all the different people we were raised around and met along the way. And so I felt like that album was like a showcase album. It was like, here's all the different lives and things that we've experienced kind of in one album. And I think um, as we continue to evolve the sound, we were like, you know what, like, let's shed a little bit and let's actually like focus, right? Like what's, the, what's at the core of all of this? And I think like what you're referring to is, is an album where like we were very clear, like, okay, if the first album is gonna be the man, this is gonna be that, the man on the mission. Mm-hmm. And our only real focus and why we're here <laughs> is for this African propaganda. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Right, so let's just talk about that. And to be honest, every album that's going to come out is going to have an element of that because, you know, in, in the same way that Marley would always, you know, like you knew what you were getting. Marley, of course, evolved and there were different, you know, um, stages and evolutions of him, but there were still things that were always consistent. You know, his love for, for Black people and Blackness and, and them recognizing their power and their might as, a, as a, a spiritual people, you know, and a force to be reckoned with on this earth that didn't change. And so I think, you know, that album was like us just completely embracing that um, and recognizing that like, there's a million other people like us that feel this way too. And we're just going to speak to that. You know what I mean? That's it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really feel that because I feel like at the same time, there was so much that was going on that shaped how the media was interpreting like this new renaissance of like, people from the diaspora first generation people on the continent when black panther came out i was in south africa seeing like the shift where it was like so many people from the diaspora were now really into 
Africa. And like, then you have these first generation or people on the continent that they are now connecting to. And like, you can now comfortably speak to them through your music Mm -hmm. or through different art in a way that like, it it was very different just a few years ago. So can you speak to like that renaissance and like your place in that and and then why that's important right now? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think, you know, and, and for me, like, I, I always just love to study, you know, what are other moments in history that have felt this way, right? And you've already brought up, too, mm-hmm. you know, on this call, and, and it happens within every generation, usually. I think prior to that, you know, we saw it in, in the 90s, right? The resurgence of uh, Black people claiming their Africanness. And so the, these things are cyclical. The difference, though, the key difference is that we are also the Black tribal uh, millennial generation. And so it was the, the unique difference was it was the first time that it was so tangible. Yeah. And so the fact that it was happening on top of the travel movement, that's what made it real. Like it made it connect in a way that it hadn't connected necessarily before. Right. And so, and I think all of that, even leading up to the year of return in Ghana and, and, you know, the significance of that moment historically. Um, so what we even saw last year with, with 2020, mm-hmm. right. All of these things, uh, even in my perception, have been connected, right? Like, I, I even look at 2020 where it felt like with the attack on Black bodies that America had to, like, face. Like, there's no way to escape this. There's no way to ignore this shit. I thought about it, and I was like, man, like, this is, like, people have been talking about the concept of 400 years for decades. Think about how many artists have made mention of 400 years in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. Everyone's been saying it. And it was the crazy thing for me when I'm like in 2020 reflecting, I'm like, it wasn't even a metaphor. Like it was actually 400 years to the year. And so I'm like, I'm like, and the fact that Corona had hit like right at the end uh, of, of this significant moment, you know, of year of return, I was like, this is all by design, you know? And I think my point being that all of these things not just within our generation, but all these generations leading up to here have colluded to create this moment that we're in right now for Black people. And so it's been a renaissance that has been brewing since the beginning. And I, and I think if there's anything, there's so many more capabilities that our generation has access to and has the power to accomplish that we really are like standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. We're like, we, we are in an extremely, not only important position, but empowered position. You know, and I think when I look at that, that that's us accepting and embracing this opportunity. And that's the renaissance we're seeing. We're seeing the reclamation of, our, of telling our own stories in all these various mediums, in, in, in music, but fuck just music, like in fashion, yep. right? It's like, it's, it's in fashion, it's in film. Um, it's, it's in the way that you just carry yourself when you walk down the street, you know? And I'm like, it, it's, such a, it's such a beautiful thing. And, and I think again, like my role and my desire is to be like, okay, cool. Like we're all a part of this chapter mm-hmm. um, where we are getting to, 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 to own our narrative, live unapologetically in it, and really, to be honest, be able to play a key role in shifting uh, the trajectory of the next 100 years, right? I think, I think if anything needs to happen, we need to be just spending money together. The real product that we need on the other side is the exchange of literally dollars between black people globally like that like that's the point of all of this Mm -hmm. i was doing an interview the other day and i was like at the end of the day if we are economically empowered Mm -hmm. 
some of these social issues, I know people are like, well, money's not going to be able to change everything. It can help. Right. It, it can help definitely, a lot. change the conversation. Absolutely. You know, and, and, I, and I think you hit on something that's very important. Like, as Black people continue to trade and actually continue to economically do business with each other and see the benefits of it, we, we still have to have a conversation of how do we continue to work with each other? What is our going to be our moral compass and how we do business with each other? What is going to be our guiding philosophical principles and what it means to really like coalesce and nation build, and especially globally, when we have so many different uh, local issues that we're dealing with, but then simultaneously trying to globally be in business with each other mm -hmm. and make sure that we're actually creating our own different way of navigating it. Um, that doesn't look like what we've learned and been subjected to. So, you know, I, we can have a whole conversation about that, how I feel about this. But uh, <laughs> so I just want you to talk about like some of the projects you're working on and what we should look out for. Yeah. So um, I don't like to reveal too much too mm -hmm. soon. Okay. Um, but 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 again, uh, I am embracing um, kind of me returning uh, to other parts of my creativity. So I'm very excited about. Uh, visual storytelling right now you know that that's kind of been a, a primary focus alongside of music still um you know I, i've still the way in which music and storytelling comes together on screen i hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the podcast with music producer nana kwabana I love talking to Nana and I will never forget the trip he led me and a big group of people on during the year of return to this island in Ghana. And it was my first time on a horse. I took some really cute pictures. They're on my Instagram. Uh, but yeah, me and my sister and a few people went out there and I always, um, you know, remember that trip fondly. I really learned a lot uh, from him that I didn't know about him already, his experiences with sickle cell disease and growing up between the U.S. and Africa. And as he said, it's really important to find ways to get across our message and fulfill our purpose in life, even if it does not look like what our parents or the older generation had in mind for us. Uh, definitely advise you to go follow Nana on Instagram at Nana Kwabana. That's N-A-N-A-K-W-A-B-E-N-A. And look out for some amazing projects that he's working on right now. You can also follow your host, Edamira Rasul, at A-M-I-R-A-R-A-S-O-O-L, to, you know, keep up with what I'm doing and what it takes to build and run this crazy company we call The Folklore. To stay up to date with the Our Folklore podcast, make sure to subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. And check back in every Wednesday for a new episode. To find out more about the people discussed in each episode and to shop styles from Africa and the diaspora's top luxury and emerging designer brands, visit thefolklore.com. Sign up for our email newsletter to receive 10% off of your first order. Also, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Folklore. Again, my name is Amira Rasul, and this is Our Folklore.